0: And uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with His Word, and more in love with people. Amen. Thank you guys for that wonderful, wonderful singing. What a wonderful thought. The faithfulness of God. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And uh, thankful that you're here this morning. We will be observing uh, believer's baptism at the end of service. And... uh, Certainly, this is something that uh, we should do after we have received Christ as our Savior. Uh, there are many, many folks who practice uh, what is known in Latin as paedobaptism baptism—that means child or infant baptism. Uh, we actually practice "credo" or "credo" baptism, which speaks of—and uh, actually, the phrase "credo" in Latin means "I believe." So, in other words, I believe in Jesus baptism, and so. Uh, We find that all throughout the New Testament, and so uh, that's what we'll be doing this morning. So excited for those who are taking this step of faith, making their public profession of faith, and being baptized. And so if you're here today, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, but you've never been uh, scripturally baptized, uh, I encourage you to join us. And uh, really, all things have, as we say all the time, all things have been made ready for you. Uh, Men to my left, to your right, young men. Uh, middle-aged men, senior saints, you guys can make your way through this uh, uh, hallway over here up the steps, and then ladies to my right, to your left, up the stairway there, Uh, literally we've got t-shirts, towels, uh, garments, whatever you need is ready there for you, and we look forward to doing that at the end of service. I do want to encourage you uh, also this evening, uh, we'll be gathering right down the street here at Buckland Farm, 6 o'clock. Uh, for a time of ice cream and fellowship. And so, uh, uh, listen, I'll let you in on a secret. You come, I'm picking up the ice cream. I'm guessing I might get a few more people. Oh, oh, it's free, okay. I'll go eat ice cream. So anyway, that's tonight at 6 o'clock down at Buckland Farms. And uh, a lot of other things I encourage you to take notice of of the announcements and as we're getting ready for our missions revival be be taking notice uh, I've been sending out some missions moment emails and sent out the second one yesterday I encourage you to take time to read those as we prepare our hearts for our missions revival if you can't tell uh, something's getting ready to happen here we've got the place uh, starting to be decorated and so thank you to all those who have helped do that by the way uh, it's been a blessing to be able to not have to do all the heavy lifting and to be able to see that um, come to fruition. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Psalm 51 as we get started this morning. I want to remind us, uh, we've been talking, this is the fourth Sunday, we've been talking about this topic of revival, so I want to remind us of our working definition of revival, and it speaks of this idea of being resuscitated, reawakened, you see there, renewed, rejuvenated in a spiritual sense towards God or the things of God. and. In week number one, we asked the question, what's revival all about? Week number two, we talked about when do we need revival? When do we look at scripture and when do we figure out, hey, maybe I need to be revived or resuscitated or renewed? Last week, we talked about why don't we experience it? And today, uh, with the Lord's help, I pray we're going to answer the question, how do we get it? How do we get revival? Because it is something that uh, I'm guessing we all need from time to time. And so uh, in Psalm 51, before we get started reading, I want to remind us of what's taking place in King David's life. If you know the story, uh, King David um, has this, uh, this time when he's supposed to be out at war. You can find this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He's supposed to be out at battle with his army, and he stays home. He sends the captain of the guard, so to speak, to the front lines and he stays home and many of you may be familiar with the story. He goes out in the evening and he looks down from his, from his posh uh, abode there and he sees uh, the young Bathsheba bathing and, and the rest is history. He has Bathsheba brought to him. They have an inappropriate relationship. Uh, find out that Bathsheba is with child He therefore calls her husband Uriah, the Hittite, home from the battlefield. He tries to get Uriah to go home and spend time with his wife in an effort to cover his sin. Uriah says, no, how could I do this Uh, when others are at war and my king is here? I'm not going to go. And so the rest of the story is David literally handwrites a decree of death, so to speak, and sends Uriah out to the front lines of, of, of the war and and basically instructs his his folks to kind of set Uriah out there uh, where he was left exposed and Uriah dies what we know from scripture is it's been quite a while that David has been dealing with this sinfulness with these decisions that he has made he's not dealt with them and and I would uh, I would suggest to you that many times just like David um, we get to the point where we do something we're living a lifestyle of Of maybe lies or deceit or whatever the case may be and we get to a point where we need revival but we're not willing at the moment to deal with our our problem and our biggest problem is sin and so in Psalm 51 we find what David writes after uh, God's man Nathan the prophet comes to David and and I'll share a little bit more about that here in a little bit but Nathan goes to David and He basically gives David a story, and David makes a judgment call there. And uh, Nathan actually reveals to David that he is the man that he's talking about. And so this is a time of when David begins to understand his sinfulness. He realizes he is in great need of revival, if you please. And Psalm 51 is his prayer that he brings before the throne of God's grace. And so let's read together, beginning in verse number 1. Of Psalm 51 and see what God has for us this morning David begins very appropriately in verse number one he says have mercy upon me O God according to thy loving kindness according to the multitude of thy tender mercies he says blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with his and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse number 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. He says, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Look at verse 12, he says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Not my salvation, David understands where his salvation came from. He says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Let's think about that for a second. He said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God thou wilt not despise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Father, we thank you for the songs that we have been able to sing as we sang out glory to your name, as we sing the praises of a thankful people. Lord, I pray that you hear our praise and that you are, that you are pleased, well pleased with our worship this morning. Lord, the reminder that we stand we stand only because of your love, because you so love the world that you sent your son to die. Lord, we stand in that love that you have proven to us over and over. Lord, we're so thankful for your faithfulness. God, I pray that today that you would work in our midst. Lord, we've talked an awful lot about revival over the past. Now, this will be the fourth Sunday. Lord, we've learned what it's all about. We've learned when we need to do it. We've learned why we don't experience it. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll open up the eyes of our understanding, that your word, as you say, will fall upon the good soil of our hearts and that your word will accomplish exactly what you desire today. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in this room or somebody watching online today that has never entered into the greatest relationship of all, a relationship with you through your dear son, Jesus. I pray that today, God, that you would move, that your Holy Spirit would draw men and women and young people under yourself, that your word would convict and do what it is intended to do today. Lord, I pray that I will step backward that you might be able to step forward and use me. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight Because, God, you are my strength, and you and you alone are my redeemer. Lord, we love you. We praise you, and we thank you for what you will do. We thank you in advance for the ones who will come to make professions of faith today, to be baptized. Lord, as they follow the example that your dear son set, even in Scripture. Lord, we love you and praise you, and we do so in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. And for his sake, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, as we get started, can I just start with a, a really fun thought? The devil is real. Does anybody else agree? The devil is real. He was, uh, he was real in David's day. And just as he was real in David's day, the devil is real today. In fact, I'm reminded from Scripture that he's a deceiver. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. We know that from 1 Peter chapter. Five and verse number 8 we, he walks about seeking him he of devour he's a deceiver he tries to tempt us and he tries to draw us away from the Lord isn't that what he did with David yeah. David wasn't where he was supposed to be he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do and God got a, got, got, God had a purpose and a plan for his life and David said you know what I'm going to operate under my own plan and under my own purpose I'm going to stay home and do what I want to do God and guess what that dirty devil was seeking to deceive David, and he did a good job. You know, the devil is also constantly accusing us. He is accusing us and trying to keep us away from living in the light and the glory of God's amazing grace. But for the child of God, he cannot do that. Amen? He will try. He will try to dissuade you. He will try to discourage you. He will try to rule your life as well. Anybody ever been tried to rule by, be ruled by the devil? Hey, let me... Don't raise your hand. This is just kind of theoretical question, right? Don't be like, hey, Pastor, yeah, you got me. Oh, shucks, you got me. Has anybody ever given in to the ruling thoughts and ways of the devil? You see, he's a deceiver, an accuser, a ruler. He wants, by the way, he wants to destroy your life. He wants to extinguish anything that is good, anything that is godly, anything that brings the Lord honor and glory. The devil wants to destroy it. He wants to put the fire out, so to speak. And that's why we need revival. David was a great man. In fact, Scripture refers to him as a man after God's own heart. You can find that. You can find proof in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. But God's Word also reminds us that David was a great sinner. Anybody here got a great savior? Say you got a great savior. Anybody? Now here's a less less fun question. Anybody here a great sinner? We're all we're all we're all covered with the same stuff. Let's not get so highbrowed that we think that our sin our sin doesn't stink because it does. Okay. David was a great sinner and ultimately he needed to be revived. By God. And one of the realities of sin, we all sin, we all have come short of the glory of God, but there are some results of sin I see in Scripture as well, even in this passage from David. And they can lead to feelings of conviction and guilt and shame and sorrow and sadness and on and on. And so, before we really answer the question of how we can be revived, I think it's important for us to refresh our memory, to refresh our memory in regards to some of the consequences of sin and David gives us all of these consequences right here in his word. And so if you're a note taker, notice right away in verse number 1 and 2, here's some thoughts about sin. Number 1, sin soils our soul. David felt dirty. Have you ever felt dirty? Listen, I was out picking weeds a couple of weeks ago. You should have seen me. I had this hard shoe on the left foot and I had this boot that I've been wearing from pull- from tearing this tendon in my right calf. And I was out there in a boot, and I was in a hard shoe, and I was bent over, and I was trying to pull weeds. And uh, you know what? When you pull weeds, you get dirty. I went inside, and my hands were covered with filth. I mean, the dirt was so bad. The weeds had gotten so bad, right? It was dirt up under my nails. I was taking a brush. I was trying to get the dirt out of my nails. David felt dirty. And you see in verse number 1, notice what he says in verse number 1. He says, blot out my transgressions. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen, feeling dirty about our sin. By the way, I'd actually say that feeling dirty about your sin is a good thing. You say, why? Because it's a pretty good indication. If you feel dirty about your sin, it's a pretty good indication that you have been born again at some point in your life. If you don't feel dirty about it, you don't care about it, there's a problem. By the way, if you're not feeling dirty about it, maybe it's time to do a spiritual inventory. That's a different message, by the way. Notice he says, blot out my transgressions. He covers the three. He's got the big three. He's got transgression, he's got iniquity, and he's got uh, sins here in verse 1 and verse 2. Transgression is the Hebrew word peshah. It means willful rebellion. It's like I've given this example before. It's like the dad who tells... The child, hey, take out the trash, and the child says, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, first of all, if I ever did that at my house, my dad had an answer for that when I was growing up, right? It's willful rebellion, peshah. David says, blot out my willful rebellion, oh God. I've acted in rebellion towards you. But then he says also, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This word iniquity is the Hebrew word evan. It means I'm twisted out of shape. And so iniquity is different from transgression. Transgression is willful rebellion. Iniquity is this idea that says when we tell tell our child or someone, hey, can you help me out, take out the trash, right? Then the word iniquity, meaning to be twisted out of shape, they do it perfectly but with the wrong heart attitude. You ever done something like that? You ever, God ever tell you to do something you're like, fine, I'll do it. And you already got a bad attitude about doing it. That's called iniquity. That's like, and by the way, it doesn't have to be between parents and kids. It could be between husbands and wives. It could be between moms and dads and dads and sons and moms and daughters and on and on. It could be between employer and employee. This idea of iniquity to be twisted out of shape. But David also says, notice he says, he says, and cleanse me, not only wash me from my iniquity, blot out my transgressions, but he says, cleanse me from my sin. The word sin is chata'ah in the Hebrew and hamartia in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, chata'ah, and then in the New Testament, hamartia. And it literally means to miss the mark. Have you ever played darts? You ever miss the dartboard? You ever played... And you're like, throw and it hits off somewhere. Or even worse, have you ever played darts and the dart doesn't stick? It's like there's something wrong with your thrower. Like it's like, what am I doing wrong? You know? I had a Bible college professor who used to say, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. That's the idea of hamartia, to miss the mark. David says, I'm guilty of all. I'm guilty of this willful rebellion. I'm guilty of iniquity. I'm twisted out of shape. I'm missing the mark. I'm not doing, God, what you've called me to do. And my life needs revival as it were. Folks, we're not to continue in sin. We're not to glory in our sin. We're to be bothered by our sin. Before Christ, we were unbelievers who walked in darkness. We sinned without regard, without feeling, or without regard to the danger that sin does to ourselves ourselves or to anyone else for that matter. But after we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residency residency in our life. And I can tell you that the Holy Spirit will arrest your attention if you start to sin. It will convict you in regards to sinfulness. And as I said just a moment ago, if that doesn't take place, it's time to take a little bit of a spiritual inventory. It's been said that when sheep fall in the mud, they actually want to get out. But pigs love to lie in the mud because that is their nature. Think about it. We're referred to over and over in Scripture as sheep. Now, sheep aren't the smartest animal, but they certainly don't like hanging out in mud. That's where the prodigal son was hanging out. He was hanging out in the slop pen with the pigs. Oh, we have to be careful because sin, it soils our soul. It saturates the mind. Verse number 3 says, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Up to this point, David was living a lie. Listen, this sin with Bathsheba had taken place a long time ago because as you're going to see, the child is born. And Nathan says to David, there's consequences for your sin. There's going to be a lot of things take place. Fourfold things are going to happen to David. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But David was living a lie. Sin had taken him down. It had disrupted his walk with the Lord. And he couldn't seem to move past his choices. By the way, I love the word choices. If you hang around Battlefield at any length of time, you're going to know that I have a phrase that I like to say all the time. We make choices and choices make us. Think about that. We make choices and choices make us. David had made choices and now he was dealing with the sorrow in the shame that had brought him to this point of repentance. Number three, sin stings stings our conscience. Look at verse 4. He says, And again, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. When I think about David's sin, he sinned against his kingdom, against his body, against his wife, against his children, against Bathsheba, against her husband. But what really broke David's heart was when he finally realized that he had sinned against God. It wasn't that he sinned against his kingdom or his self or his wife or his kids or Bathsheba or Uriah or any of the other things that really arrested his attention. What really got him was when he came to the realization that all sin is against God and God alone. Oh, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man who realized his sin was offensive to God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 reminds us that whom the Lord loveth, he chastens. But here's what I put in, my, put in my notes. We don't weep over sin because of God's chastening or correction. Can I tell you this? When I was a kid, and I made reference to when I was a child, that if I were to disobey, there were consequences for my behavior. I, I lovingly joke, listen, I lovingly joke that my dad had a weapon of mass instruction not a weapon of mass destruction, but instruction. Do you know that I did not weep over the fact that my dad corrected me or punished me on occasion? You know what I would weep at? That I had disappointed my dad. My youngest son's a lot like that. I could spank him. I could try to arrest his attention in every way known under the Sun but if I looked at him and I said you have so disappointed your mother and I tears would flow that's what David understood David understood that he had disappointed his heavenly father it had stung his conscience in fact, in Romans chapter 6, listen to what scripture says. In verse number 16, here's what Paul says to the church. He says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey? The word servant, by the way, in Greek, is literally the word slave. Now, watch, let's read it again. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves slaves to obey, his slaves ye are to whom you obey. Whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness, but God be thanked that you were the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made from sin, you became slaves or servants of righteousness. Galatians chapter 4 follows it up. It says, Wherefore thou art no more a slave, but a son. Can you say thank you, Jesus? thank you Jesus no longer if you're in Christ you're no longer a slave or a servant to sin you are a son you have been adopted And there's a beautiful picture, we don't have time to go into it in the Jewish culture of that day of adoption that you could never be disowned. And guess what, you were not only adopted, but you were an inheritor of what you were going, what family was adopting you. So now watch what it says, it says, wherefore thou art no more a servant or a slave, but a son, i.e. a child of God. And if a son, then good news, you are now an heir or an inheritor of God through Christ. Man, I don't know about you, that makes me do a happy dance. A lot of people hanging out waiting for an inheritance. I got news for you, my, herit- my inheritance is in another realm. Shee, y'all wait and get all the inheritance you want. I'm going to another journey. I'm going to get my inheritance somewhere else. It's an inheritance that will never, ever fade away. Oh, there's a huge difference between being a servant and a son And David knew this. And as a son, as God's child, here's the thing. I think that David got to the point. Here's when you know when you're getting ready to have revival. Because David got to the point where he was heartbroken by the fact that he had broken God's heart. If you're not heartbroken about breaking God's heart, then you're not ready for revival. Sin also saddens the heart. In verse number 8, the Bible says, make me to hear joy. And gladness. David said, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. In verse number 12, he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. If you look back in Psalm 51, by the way, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 were kind of written during the same time that David was dealing with the outcome, coming out of this sinful time, this, this time where he was not walking with the Lord, dealing with this sin of Bathsheba. And in Psalm 32... Here's what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, When I kept silent, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, and my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. David was miserable. He was miserable because he had figured out the hard way that as Hebrews uh, uh, chapter 11 verse number 25 alludes to, that the pleasure of sin is but for a season. It's only for a little while. Remember Moses, he said, no, he said, I'm not going to choose sin for a season. I'm going to reject that. That that plan, that policy, I'm going to reject that. David had to learn the hard way that the pleasures of sin were only for a season. Oh, he was miserable because he knew he was out of fellowship with God. And here's the thing I put in my notes. When God saves us, he does not install some secret mechanism that keeps us from sinning. Can anybody identify with that? Have you been saved and you come to the realization that God has not installed some special mechanism to keep you from sinning? Anybody other than me? What God has installed is His Spirit. And here's the deal. It's not a mechanism to keep us from sinning. It's a mechanism, the Holy Spirit is a mechanism to keep us from sinning and actually enjoying it. See, you might enjoy it for a season, but that old Holy Spirit is going to convict you and remind you that you're a child of the king, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're an inheritor, if you please, of what God has for you. You're not going to enjoy it. Oh, my friends, what an incredible promise we have from God's word. Are you filled with joy this morning? Oh, I pray that you are. I pray that you are. It's been said that happiness is like a thermometer because it only registers conditions. But joy is like a thermostat because it controls the conditions. Sometimes I look out through here and and I'll see the ladies doing this. That's the sign, Carl, that you need to go to the thermometer, the thermostat over there. If they're waving the fans, they're doing this. Uh Uh-oh, Pam started waving the fan as soon as I said it. Somebody get back to the thermostat and drop it a degree. Oh, listen. Listen. There's a difference between happiness and joy. You know, Nehemiah said in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse number 10 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Oh, you want to have some strength? Oh, rest in the joy of the Lord. Hey, by the way, there's only one thing. I mentioned last week, don't let the devil steal your joy. The devil can't really steal your joy. He'll try to do it. You know what steals our joy and robs us of joy? It's what David understood. It was his own sin. Sometimes we don't like to deal with our own sin. We love to point out everybody else's sin, though, don't we? we man, we're good sin barometers. We're like we're like a state trooper on the side of the highway with that with that radar gun. We can find out everybody else's sin. But we're not good at dealing with our own sin. Mm. Someone said joy is the flag that is flown from the castle of our heart when the king is in residence. Tomorrow they'll lay to rest Queen Elizabeth. You know, when you're in London, if the queen is in residence, the flag flies. And when she's not, it doesn't. The question for us today is, is the king in residence in the castle of our heart? Because when the king's in residence, there's going to be joy, joy unspeakable in our lives. Look back at verse number 8. Because sin not only saddens the heart, It actually sickens the body because remember David said make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. So here we see that David is proclaiming the extreme amount of pressure that he was feeling because of his his wayward wandering and his own sinfulness. By the way, there may be many reasons for illnesses, and I know that there are some old-time preachers that used to preach, and I'll not make that mistake of saying that every sickness and every time you're sick is, is the result of your own personal sin. I used to hear that when I was a kid, and I was thinking, wow, I got a cold because I did something wrong. I didn't, even, I didn't lie, I didn't cheat, I didn't steal. Why are they saying that I'm sick because of sin? Well, in a general sense, that might be true. But I also believe that sometimes our sickness can be the result of sin. And you say, well, where would you get that? Well, I would get it, one, one quick example would be 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 30. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper. And in verse number 30, he said, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and actually many sleep. Well, what was he talking about? During that time, there were many who had, who had been irreverent, they had basically been um, partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that was not meant to be done. Uh, they were abusing it, right? And so Paul says to him, he says, there are many who are sick. There are many who actually sleep. That word sleep means they died because of this sickness. And so I see that that's a principle. But on the flip side, if we go over to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse number 22, the Bible says, a merry heart doeth good like medicine and a broken spirit dryeth the bones. The bottom line I put down is when we're right with God, everything is better, and when we're not right with God, nothing could be worse. And that's where David found himself. He had found himself in a position where nothing could be worse. Number six, sin sours our spirit. In verse number 10, David said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, he had a wrong spirit lurking within inside of him, and that's what sin does. It takes the Holy Spirit of God, and, and, and we reject the Spirit's leading and the Spirit's guiding, and we say, guess what? I'm going to live according to my Spirit. And that's what David was doing. By the way, I dare say some of the meanest people on earth are backslidden believers. Have you ever met them? Backslidden believers. Even, so more, even more so than unbelievers. I've met some unbelievers that are right down nice. Just love you to death, man. They love you, love you, love you. And I've met some backslidden believers who would despise you and find fault and pass judgment all across the board. By the way, that's exactly what David did. I referred to it. Nathan comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and he tells him this story about the ewe lamb and he tells him about the, the one who's rich, took the one who had none and, and killed the one and the other. And immediately David makes a judgment. David judges the one who he thought had stole the lamb. He judges the one who had killed someone else and yet, I, and Nathan says, hello, you're the one who stole the man's wife. Hello, you're the one who killed the woman's husband. Backslidden believers tend to be the epitome of Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and you can go there and find it. That's the passage where it reminds us that we're prone, we're prone to find the moat in somebody else's eye without realizing we got a big old beam coming out of our eye, sinfully speaking. That's what backslidden believers typically do. By the way, the last consequence that we see for sin is that sin seals our lips It seals our lips. And notice with me in verse number 12. David says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Notice the very next word. He says, then. In other words, God, after you do all of these things, after you do these things, then he says, I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He goes on, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and watch, he goes on, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. So once you do what I'm asking you to do, then I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. Then he says, O Lord, verse 15, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. See, from David's own words, we we can detect that when sin abounds, our verbal witness ceases. When sin abounds, our verbal witness ceases. Now, someone who's in need of revival, they may come to a worship service and sing. They may come to go through the motions, raise their hand. They may attempt to praise the Lord. They may even agree uh, with the Lord and His word in some small capacity. They may actually go out and pass out tracts. But I can assure you that someone who is in need of revival will be susceptible to the intimidations of the devil. David understood this. He sees through this passage all the effects that sin had had in his life. But since the goal was not to look at the consequences of sin, but the goal was to find out how do we have revival, we can also see embedded in these same verses is a key ingredient, so to speak, the recipe, if you will, for our success In having revival and so look with me at verse number one here's your point like David we must have some confidence you see David had confidence in who God was because in verse number one he says have mercy upon me in other words he's saying God withhold what I deserve withhold from me what I deserve show me some mercy He says, God, have mercy upon me. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So David says, I know I'm a great sinner, but God, I know that you're a God who's full of mercy. And not only are you a God full of mercy and loving kindness, but you have a multitude of mercies. And so God, I have confidence that you can do it. David said, I'm a sinner, but I know that you can take care of this. By the way, if God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, right, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If God so loved the world, if God proved his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, then I would assert to you that there's nothing that you and I can do to keep God from loving us. Amen. You say, man, I'm so horrible. How could God love me? There, listen to me. There's nothing that you can do to keep God from loving you. Now, let, don't get me wrong. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Isn't that good? See, sometimes we get it backwards. We love sin, but hate the sinner. Oh, we got to follow what God says. Oh, well, listen, God's grace is greater than all our sin, and David knew that. Listen, if you need revival, then you need to, number one, be confident in the fact that God loves you and God is a God of mercy. Amen. Number two, like David, we must exercise some good old contrition. Now that word contrition is a fancy word. That's not a word you hear every day out on the road like, uh, hey brother, how's your contrition going? How's your walk of contrition? That's not a word that you hear every day. It's a fancy word, but it means to feel or be remorseful. You need revival? Then you need to be a little bit remorseful about your sin. Be sorrowful for the things that you've done. In verse number 17 of our text, David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. David is talking about being humiliated and humbled under the weight of sin to an awareness that he was spiritually bankrupt. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, if we exalt ourselves, Jesus says, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, but whosoever shall Humble himself, shall be lifted up. See, God's ways are different than ours. And David understood that he was spiritually bankrupt. He exercised some contrition. By the way, a contrite heart, think about this. A contrite heart does not try to rationalize, explain, right? Make excuses, defend, uh, or justify, I put down here, or even justify our sin. Don't we do that sometimes? Guess what? You're not alone. You know Adam did it in the Garden of Eden. He tried to justify things. He tried to make excuses. He says, God, that woman you gave me. Right? He started, men, they needed marriage counseling right then and there. I mean, that marriage was in trouble right away. David says, that woman you gave me did it. And by the way, you're the one who gave her to me. Oh, we got to be careful about making excuses. A contrite heart doesn't try to fool God, others, or even ourselves. A contrite heart deals in things that are true and things that are honest. A contrite heart recognizes sin for what it is. It's a spiritual crime against God. A contrite heart understands that this crime of God is a crime of rebellion and disobedience and stubbornness. This is what David understood. And through his story and example, I believe God is teaching and reminding us that he's not into empty apologies. He's not into empty apologies. You know what that looks like? An empty apology is, hey God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm living this way. Thank you for for reviving my heart. And then walk out the door and do exactly what you said you were just sorry for. That's an empty apology. By the way, that's an empty apology whether we're going this way or this way. Honey, I'm sorry. And then turn around and do the same thing. Dad, I'm sorry. Mom, I'm sorry and turn around and do the same thing. Listen, that's an empty promise. God's not into empty or cheap or useless promises or useless resolutions. A broken and contrite heart is a real sign that someone is ready to turn from, ready to forsake, ready to abandon their own sin. Remember last week, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God said, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Oh, listen, David, like David, we must exercise some contrition. Number three, like David, we must confess our sin and need. Look at verse number three and four. He confesses. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions. And then in verse four, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He didn't just admit he was guilty for his sinful choices or sinful living. He confesses his sin and that it is against God and God alone. By the way, if you hold up verse 4 again, notice David also says, God, you're right to judge me. You have every right to judge me. Is what he's saying there at the end of verse number 4. Turn with me to 1 John. I want you to see this. I was going to read it, but I want you to see it for yourselves. If you have your Bible, turn. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. In my Bible, it'll give you a clue. It's on page 788. It'll get you headed in the right direction. Whether it's 788 in your Bible or not. In 1 John chapter 1, notice what John writes Drop down when you get there. Those who are turning, are you there yet? 1 John chapter 1. When you get there, drop down to verse number 5. In verse number 5, here's what John says. He said, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Remember, we talked about walking in the darkness versus walking in the light a couple weeks ago. And on Wednesday nights, excuse me. Verse number six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse number 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a dichotomy of decisions is being made here. Here's the thing, when we try to cover up sin, God uncovers it. And when we uncover our sin, the beautiful thing is the blood of Jesus actually covers it. That's a wonderful gift and a wonderful promise from God's word. If we're, need of, if we're in need of forgiveness and cleansing this morning, if that's our need this morning, we must confess that we are wrong. You know, it, it takes a big person to say, I was wrong. Whether it's going this way or this way. You know, I think a lot of problems could be averted if we would just be men and women big enough to admit that we're wrong when we're wrong. And this is what David's saying. He's saying, God, I was wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. And God, I need you to do all of these things. I need you to intervene into my situation because I'm, I'm, I'm living a lie. I'm, I'm living a life that is not honoring, a life that's not bringing you glory. And this is what he does. He points this out to God. I think about Solomon in Proverbs 28:13, He says, "He that covereth sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy." Isaiah, you remember when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. What does he say in verse number five of Isaiah six? He says, "Woe is me." He says, "Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips." And he goes on, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." This is he had a right estimate, estimation of his own sin. I think in Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells Peter and the other fishermen to thrust out from the, from, the, from the edge of the lake, right? And he says, thrust out and drop down the nets. And Peter's like, listen, we're the fishermen here. We've been fishing all night. Are you crazy? You know the story. If you read, they take in so many fish, they can't even hold it. What does Peter do? He turns and he drops at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Oh, listen, like David, we need to confess our sin and our need. The Apostle Paul was clear in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he said, of whom I am chief. I'm the worst of the worst. This is what David understood. He needed a right spirit and a new heart. You know, for God to do what he only He can do through reviving our hearts and our lives, we're going to have to be willing to be honest with Him and to confess our need. I think I shared it last week, but I'll share it again. Psalm 139 and verse 23 and 24, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He goes on in verse 24, And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh yes, we must have some confidence, we must exercise some contrition, and we must confess our need and our sin. But like David, lastly, we must cry out to God for cleansing. David understood that he could not cleanse his own self. He cries out to God. And a quick run through, verse number 1, you remember he said, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Wash me and I shall be whiter in snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 15, deliver me. And so David goes on and on. He says, God, I need you to do what only you can do. I need you to blot out my transgressions. I need you to wash me. By the way, he says, I need you to wash me twice. He needs a double cycle. He needs the towel cycle. If you please. Why does it take so long to wash towels? Because we're dirty people. Hello, there's some spiritual application that can be put on that. He says, God, I need you to cleanse me. I need, you to, I need you to cleanse me of my transgressions. I need you to cleanse me of my iniquity and my sin. God, I need you to purge me. Purge me like, like, uh, like as if I'm a leper. Purge me of my sin. I need you to create. I need you to create in me a new heart, a clean heart, right? He's saying, God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to lay me down on the operating table. And I need you to open up your surgical bag. And I need you to cut out the bad heart and restore it. Or, if you like this analogy better, God, I need you to put a pacemaker in there. That I might keep pace with you and your spirit need you to renew a right spirit within me need to restore the joy of my salvation by the way once God does all of these things once God did all of these things do you know what he did with David's record you know what he did with his record he erased it he erased it you and I are sitting here talking about David's sin with Bathsheba but you know what I don't believe I don't believe that that's gonna be brought up as a thing to David I don't believe it's been brought up, and I don't think it's going to be brought up. Because God wiped it all away. He erased it. He cast it into the depths of the sea. He put it from the east as far as east is from the west. And that's exactly what He does for us when we give it back to Him. You say, well, how do you know that's what God did? Well, because earlier I told you that Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are believed to have been written at the same time. And if you go to Psalm 32, he talks about the pressure that he felt under. But when you get to verse number 5, here's how David surmises all that God did. He says, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He said, God, you did it. You did what only you could do. And that's what he'll do for us. By the way, David's path to revival was not an easy one. You can go, like I said, read 2 Samuel chapter 12. You'll see all about the consequences. And you read on the rest of David's story. And you even read how his son, the sword, never departs his house. And his son comes after him to betray his own father and to steal his throne. And you see the consequences of his sin. By the way, we, no man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. When we sin, it has an effect on the people that we love and the people that we're around. You say, well, I've got a little pet sin that nobody knows about. i got news for you. God knows. You know, there's a a theme that says, be sure your sin will find you out. It affects other people, whether we know it or not. David understood, beyond the consequences, uh, that it was only by God's grace that he would be forgiven and restored. His revival demanded a returning of sorts to the Lord, a returning in confidence, a returning with contrition, a returning in great confession, and a returning back to God for cleansing because he knew that he was unable to blot out his own transgressions, he was unable to wash his iniquities away or to cleanse his sin. He knew that only God could do it. So if you're sitting here this morning and you know you're not where you need to be spiritually, you know you're not where you need to be relationally with the Lord. I challenge you with one verse. It's the verse that James gives us in James chapter 4 and verse number 8. He says, draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to you. That's what David did. David said, I'm I'm messed up, man. I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm not fellowshipping with the Lord. Uh, My sin is ever before me, is what he said. It's like, it's like my bones feel broken. Everything's going wrong in my life. And so here's what I need to do. I need you, Lord, to do a miracle work in my life. Maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Bible goes on and says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. You say... Man, is it about being a Baptist? No, it's not about being a Baptist. By the way, many of you know I'm the son of a Methodist minister of music. I grew up in the Methodist church. God has a wonderful sense of humor. Why didn't you go to Randolph-Macon? I have no idea. But here I stand in front of you, not because I was a Methodist growing up or a Baptist now. I stand before you because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Oh, don't get confused, my friend. I'm not headed to heaven because my dad was saved. I'm not headed to heaven because my mom is a child of the king. I'm headed to heaven because I'm a child of the king. I'm headed to heaven because of Jesus and only Jesus. Amen? So I'd encourage you, you've never trusted Christ. Today's a perfect day to understand how much he loves you You've heard enough scripture to understand the consequences of sin. You've heard the remedy for David's situation. It's very similar. If you've never trusted Christ, just bring your heart before his throne and ask him to forgive you and to come into your life. And I guarantee you one thing. It, it's, it's not going to be, uh, it, it's, I'm not going to promise you prosperity gospel stuff. There are going to be ups and downs and in-betweens. But I got news for you. Jesus Christ came to give us not only life, but then abundant life. Maybe you're here today, and you're saved, and, but you be honest. You say, Pastor, I'm struggling. Struggling. Pastor, I'm not walking with the Lord. Pastor, uh, I seemingly have lost the joy of the salvation that God gave me. And I don't know what to do about it. I'm struggling, lack of joy, not walking with the Lord, trying to figure things out. And I'm not sure what to do. Can I tell you, with all the love that I can give to you, do what David did. Believe that God loves you. Believe that God still has a multitude of mercies. And that he wants to blot out. He wants to wash. And he wants to cleanse. Believe that. Exercise some good old contrition, some remorsefulness. Confess this to God. You don't have to confess it to me. Jesus Christ took care of that. We go to the throne of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Confess it, and then, you know what I think would be a great thing to do? Cry out. Cry out for the cleansing that only, that only our Lord can provide. And I know this from experience not just from David's word. I know this from experience. He will do. He will do it again, as the song says. He will revive your heart. He will create in you a clean heart. He will restore the joy of your salvation. He will make you to sing. He will make you to teach transgressors his way. If, remember last week I said, if we exercise some willingness and we exercise some holiness. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we've had to look at this this detailed story. God, that you have left in your word as a reminder to us of a man who was someone who has been referred to in your word as a man after your own heart. But God, there was a time in his life when he was not walking with you. He was living a lie, as it were, and he needed to be revived. And so, Lord, I thank you for this reminder from your text. I pray that your people would hear what you have had to say today. Lord, that your people will do what they need to do, those who are struggling, those who are walking according their own way, those who are, are seemingly feel like they've lost the joy of the salvation that you have blessed them with. Lord, I pray that you will draw them unto yourself Lord, I pray for those who don't know Christ that today they might call out upon the name of the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. Father, we love you. We look forward to what you're going to do as we witness the professions of faith and the baptism of these individuals who will be coming this morning. Lord, we sing praise to you. We worship you in praise and we give you the glory for what you'll do. And we do so in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake, amen.